We are walking with Jesus through Holy Week. <clears throat> this is episode four of a series of five, at least, maybe six, uh, lessons in which we're examining a Holy Week from the eyes and through the eyes of Jesus. We are walking with him. We are joining the twelve as they, as they follow him into Jerusalem. And we started this journey on Palm Sunday, looking at the fact that Jesus has entered Jerusalem on a cult in fulfillment of prophecy as God's anointed, appointed, uh, and only king. He is the king of Israel. Whether people acknowledge him that as that or not is incidental. It would be good, good for them if they did, of course, but that doesn't take away from the fact that God's purposes are not thwarted by unbelief. And that's part of the lesson that we're learning in, uh, in Holy Week. So, we uh, just by way of quick review, we um, uh, follow Jesus into Jerusalem uh, as the king in which the people were crying out, Hosanna in the highest. It was a glorious moment. In fulfillment of prophecy, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So Jesus has entered Jerusalem as the long-awaited son of David. In fulfillment of messianic prophecy. And he enters Jerusalem and just goes directly to the temple. And he spent some time inspecting the temple. And we learn from there he went to Bethany for the night, for it was late in the day by that time. The next morning, on the way back to Jerusalem, he encountered a fig tree that, although it had leaves, it had no fruit. And we discover that that is a uh, metaphor, that is a symbol of Israel at that time. It was a fruitless nation. It was in a fruitless system, whereas the Levitical priesthood and the worship uh, sacrifices, the worship at the temple, was all designed, the law was given, to point us toward Jesus. And Jesus being the fulfillment of that system, instead they had turned in on themselves so that the system itself became a means to its own end. That did not require faith. It did not require God's power. It did not even require that you acknowledge God's saving purposes. And therefore, they could not acknowledge Jesus for who he was. And so, Jesus has cursed this fig tree. And later, Peter saw on the way back that night, uh, as they were heading back to Bethany, that the, the, the tree had actually... Uh, withered to this very roots. And we learned that when Jesus curses something, that God's curse on self-made religion that stands apart from faith, genuine faith, and doesn't rely on Christ alone, is, a, is something that God not only opposes, it's something he curses, and he curses it in the most severe manner to the roots There was nothing superficial about Jesus cursing that fig tree. So this is a very sobering moment. Because as we pick it up now in episode 4 here, Jesus has cursed the fig tree. 
It's an object lesson for the disciples that they ought to understand now that they're going into Jerusalem. And whether or not they understood the fig tree in its fullness at this point, we don't know. But the object lesson was nonetheless delivered. And now they're going to witness another cursing. They're going to witness Jesus going to the temple. Our text today is Mark 11, 15 through 17. Uh, actually, we'll go through verse 18. Mark 11, verses 15 through 18. So we're following Jesus through Holy Week. And one of the things that we're going to discover in this text today is a two diametrically opposed views of the temple. We're going to see and discover how Jesus viewed the temple at that time and how the clergy, the Jewish clergy, saw the temple. And what these Jewish leaders failed to acknowledge is that the whole system of the Levitical worship was not about them. It was about the one to whom the temple worship, the Levitical priesthood, and the sacrifices, indeed the whole law, pointed to, namely the Messiah. And we know, of course, that it, that is Jesus. So instead of fulfilling God's purpose as, they, as the type and shadow, the Levitical priesthood and the temple worship and the whole law itself pointing to Christ as the fulfillment of it, it had turned instead onward to itself. It had hardened to a self-contained system that didn't acknowledge the authority of Jesus. So today we're going to see how Jesus sees the temple, and we're going to discover how the clergy, Jewish clergy sees the temple, and we're going to see this issue of authority being played out as well. This is very important for us today in this Holy Week, because this is a Holy Week, a time of year when we ought to be in really some good self-reflection. Not that we shouldn't be throughout the year, but this is especially the time in which we want to pause and reflect and, and rejoice in the grace that we've been shown, the faith that we've been given, and the object of that faith is Jesus alone, not a system. Okay, well, let's look at the text. Uh, Mark eleven fifteen through 18. Then they came to Jerusalem, they being Jesus and the disciples, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he was not permitting anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. <clears throat> and the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. End quote. So immediately following the cursing of the fig tree, Jesus comes into Jerusalem with his disciples, enters the temple, and begins to drive out 
those who were buying and selling in the temple, the retail religion that was happening there, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Now, this Greek word that we translate here, drive out, is the same Greek word that's used elsewhere in the Gospels for Jesus driving out demons. And that fact should not be lost on us here. The same Greek word used here that we translate drive out, he began to drive out, is the same word used when elsewhere in the Gospels when Jesus drives out demons. So what was it that Jesus was encountering here in this temple atmosphere? What Jesus was encountering here is the angel of light who had seduced and twisted and perverted the ways of God and had set up a system that was in fact diametrically opposed to the saving ways of God and diametrically opposed to Jesus Christ as king and high priest. Diametrically opposed to the f Jesus as the fulfillment of that whole system. So what these Jewish leaders didn't understand and what they failed to acknowledge is that the whole system, the Levitical worship and all that went with it, was not about them. It was about the one to whom the temple worshipped, the Levitical priesthood, and the sacrifices. Indeed, the whole law pointed to, namely, Jesus himself. But these people had been seduced. They had been deceived. They had adopted a form of religion that was being um, influenced the influence from which it was empowered by satanic, energized deception. And so Jesus comes with all the authority of the King of Israel. He is Israel at that moment. We know, we don't understand that. We don't think of our presidents as being the United States. But in ancient, in ancient societies, the king embodied the people. The king embodied the nation. He was the personification, if you will, of the nation. And so Jesus here is Israel at its finest. Israel, the fulfillment of God's saving purposes in the world. And he is encountering God's enemies with that full divine authority, and he's driving them out. He's driving out this satanically, satanically energized system that stands opposed to God. Now, now it looked good. It had all the trappings, although you can only imagine what a circus atmosphere it could get to be some days. All the activity, all the money changing hands, all the talking, all the, all the people, all the conversations happening, the bleeding of the cattle and the oxen and the, and the doves, the cooing of the doves, and all that was going on around you. And then on top of it, you had these people 
who were using the uh, temple courtyard as a shortcut. A temple courtyard as a, sh a shortcut to get to the other side of the temple. In other words, people who were in Jerusalem buying merchandise, instead of leaving the temple and going around the temple to get to the other side to get to where they're going, they would just carry their merchandise through the temple yard. They were treating the temple grounds not as a sanctuary, not as a holy place, but as something very common. Something they could use for their own convenience. So in verse 16 we read, And he was not permitting anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. This whole system was a false system of self-made righteousness and merchandising. It was a system that viewed faith, yes, even grace, but the elements of faith as simply being enabling powers so that one could keep the law as God's ordained means to accruing righteousness by which one could commend oneself to God and enter the kingdom of heaven. It was a system designed to produce your own righteousness. They didn't feel they lacked righteousness. They had the whole system. They had everything in front of them. They had the Levitical priesthood, the sacrifices, the atoning sacrifices. They had the annual high priest and his sacrifice, Passover sacrifice. They had the daily temple prayer. And they had the Pharisees and the scribes as the standards uh, living embodiment of righteousness. So they thought. You can imagine then how shocking it was when Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, he said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That had to be a stunning statement to the average Jew listening to Jesus on that day. The Pharisees were considered to be the, the most righteous of the righteous. A good Jewish mother would point his, her son to the Pharisees as models of righteousness. But Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So it was a, it was a false righteousness. Just like they had a false view of the temple. As if the temple existed for them and was all about them. Instead of being that which pointed to the Messiah alone. So we have two diametrically opposed views of the temple. Now, let me just interject. This was not a Jewish problem, but a human problem. The Jewish leaders did not think and act like this simply because they were Jews. 
That would be pure and un unadulterated anti-Semitism. <clears throat> and that's sin. This wasn't a Jewish problem. It was a human problem. They were fallen human beings. Yes, they were had all the advantages of being Jewish, meaning they had all the advantages of the system itself designed by God to point them to the Messiah, to point them to whom to the one who was to come. But as I've repeatedly said, that system fell short, and instead they started making it about themselves, and they turned in on themselves and reconfigured and redefined the system to not be a type and a shadow pointing towards the Messiah and the true salvation, but to a system where they could develop their own system of righteousness. So this is what Jesus has come to judge. Just like he judged and cursed the fig tree, he's coming in to drive these things out of the temple. It's a form of judgment that Jesus is exercising here. And as we've learned, it's a thorough judgment. Though that thorough judgment will not be fully realized, this is a predictor. Jesus' actions that day is a predictor of the judgment that will be fully realized in, in 70 A.D., when the Roman general Titus will come into Jerusalem, and the historians tell us that the, he could not control his soldiers. They just went mad. They started tearing down everything, knocking down everything, destroyed the temple, brought it down to, to the fact that now there was not one stone left upon another, just as Jesus had predicted. Now, how easy is it for us to begin to think of our own theological systems, our own denominations, our own religious heritage, yes, even our own church building, in the same way that the Jewish leaders of that day, that day that Jesus went in and drove them out, drove out the money changers and so on, we began thinking the same way about our own church built. I mean, goodness, throughout Europe and the United States, we have these magnificent buildings. And not just in Catholic or Anglican or Lutheran buildings, but, but even, you know, these days, massive evangelical mega church buildings. We've had for we've had fifteen hundred years of stained glass in holy places and a sense of comfort that because we're inside this building that somehow we're okay with God. We've had fifteen hundred years now, ever since Constantine, especially three thirteen A.D. of Christianity become a, a system that's turned in on itself. The medieval theology reflected the Judaizing, uh, reflected the Judaizing of it, because it was very much like the first-century Judaism. It wasn't about the righteousness of Christ. It was about developing a system, of sacramental system, 
of rules and conduct by which you could accrue merit and righteousness in order to commend yourself at the end of your life to God and enter heaven. That's the medieval theology that developed within Christendom. That's what the Reformation was about. It was about the Reformers discovering by reading Scripture that that was a false system. That righteousness came by faith. Faith apart from works. That faith itself was a gift. In fact, they discovered that regeneration, being born again, precedes saving faith. The fallen human humanity can't even come up with saving faith on their own. They, that's how dead they are in their trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1 So this is the, the... What I'm saying is what was happening here in the temple that day that Jesus went in and judged is the default position for humanity. The default position for humanity is to develop a system by which we use the law or sacraments or some kind of religious activity and assign to it merit so that we can accrue a quantitative level of righteousness on our own by which we will commend ourselves to God in that final day. But Jesus has cursed it. It's fruitless. The problem with those kind of systems, the problem with those default systems, is that they are defined by hypocrisy. Because guess what? The fallen human mind, the fallen human heart, cannot acquire righteousness. They can put on a good appearance. They can develop a form of godliness. They can look really good. They can appear pious to the outside, to the human eye. But their hypocrisy, which still springs from an unregenerate heart, does not escape the eyes of God. Now, God has prescribed that there's one means of gaining righteousness, and that is by grace alone through the gift of faith alone, by which we understand that Jesus Christ himself, and he alone is the object of that faith, by which we are granted imputed righteousness. In other words, righteousness comes to us by faith, a faith that unites us to Christ in his Righteousness. In other words, you and I have no righteousness of our own. Zip. The righteousness that we have is Christ's righteousness because we're in union with him, the righteous one. Now, we have this wonderful truth in the New Testament that that righteousness is not just abstract. It's not just some unconscious thing or something we simply accept that we have. 
No, no, no. The righteousness that we have by faith is ours by faith, by faith alone, but not in a faith that is alone. In other words, it is a righteousness that is real. It is Christ's own righteousness, the one with whom we are in union. And it is worked out in our character throughout the Christian life. It's a faith that produces obedience. It's a, a faith that produces an obedience that is representative of the fact that God himself is at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. It is a faith that understands that in our union with Christ, we are also being conformed into the image of Christ. We are becoming like him in thought, word, and deed. And one day we will see him and we will be perfected in his image and we will be just like him. In other words, the glorified risen Christ who's sitting at the right hand of the Father in his humanity as well as his deity, we will one day share in that glorification. But it's not because of anything we did, not because of anything we evoked. It's not even because we drummed up a bunch of faith one day. We, it's because by grace that God moved upon our heart, mind, and will through the hearing of the gospel, we were born of the Spirit and a product, a, a blossom of that being born of the Spirit, of that regeneration by the Spirit, is the gift of faith. And we know it's saving faith because it has one object and one object alone, and that is Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Anyone who professes Christ and then goes about either developing a system or looking for a system whereby they can begin to go through certain motions, certain religious activities by which they accrue merit and righteousness that they hope and believe that will commend them to God on that final day has missed the gospel. They are deceived. And their whole system is under a curse. Although they may not be aware of it, they may not be fully aware of it, in fact, they may be and likely are oblivious to it. I don't think anybody standing around the temple that day that Jesus came and drove things out were standing around saying, boy, what are we going to do? This isn't working. They, If Jesus had not come to the temple that day, everything would have gone on just as it always had gone on. And the people believed, people who had believed their leaders, their Jewish religious leaders, in thinking that somehow the Pharisees were the standard for righteousness and the, and the model for what they should all be, would have continued to walk in that deception. So let me make this clear. We're coming to a close here. Let me make this clear. The, the Jewish people at this time, not all of them. I mean, the tax collectors and the publicans, the, the tax collectors, I should say, and the prostitutes, they're outside of the system. They were not wanted. They were not welcome. But remember what Jesus said. He told the Pharisees, truly I say to you, 
The tax collectors and the prostitutes will enter the kingdom of God before you do. And why would that be? Because they saw their need for him. Where the people within the system didn't. The question I have for you today is, are you in a system? And by are you in a system that that by which you think you're accruing righteousness by being a part of it? Let me ask you this. Do you think that you accrued righteousness by going to church on Sunday? Do you believe that God is more pleased with you because you went to church than if you had stayed home? Do you believe that somehow God is is imparting righteousness to you or favor towards you because you went to church last Sunday? Or because you're going to Good Friday services this week? Or because you're going to partake in some big celebration service on Sunday? Do you think that God is somehow uh, more pleased with you? You are more acceptable to God because you're participating in Holy Week activities? Then you've bought the lie, folks. If you're a part of a system that's telling you that by all these activities during Holy Week, whether it's sacraments or prayer times or or dinners or uh, whatever's happening, solemn worship service on on Friday. Not that there's anything wrong with those things in themselves. They only become an abomination when we begin to seek righteousness or acceptance with God through them. I hope you hear what I'm saying. Jesus drove out the money changers and those who were buying and selling. And he wouldn't allow people to take a shortcut through the um, temple with their shopping cart all full. Because that system needed, needed to be cleansed before it could be fulfilled. He cleansed it. He judged that system. But he restored the temple because the temple was designed to point to him. And it was not doing its job. It was not doing what it was intended for. It had become a robber's den. A depository for extortion and oppression and greed, hypocrisy. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began sinking how they could destroy him. There are those today who will destroy any notion that faith in Christ alone is adequate for righteousness. Jesus said, this is, don't you realize that this temple, is, my house is to be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Listen, that system came to an end that day. It was physically destroyed in 70 A.D. But the house of God didn't end. Let me close with this reading from Hebrews chapter 3. It says in verse 1 of chapter 3 of Hebrews, Therefore, holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus. That's what we're doing. We're considering the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, insomuch as the builder of the house has more honor, honor than the house. 
For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. God chooses. God does not dwell in houses made with hands. Very important to understand. The temple was a type and shadow that pointed to Jesus. Jesus has come, and he is the evidence. In John chapter 2, he cleansed the temple, to use that phrase, and then he declared his own body to be the temple. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus served as the mobile temple. He went around healing, forgiving, cleansing lepers, caring, providing, feeding people. All that the people came to the temple to get, they found in the person of Jesus as he went about Galilee and into Jerusalem. Now listen to this. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which are to be spoken later. Moses did his job. Those who came after him did not. Verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Listen to this now carefully. Whose house we are. We are the house of God. There is no more temple. And I don't care how nice your cathedral is or how nice your church building is. That's not where God dwells anymore. God dwells within you, individually and corporately together. We are Christ's house. We are God's house. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope. Beloved, let our house be a house of prayer for all nations. We are called to walk in the same righteousness that Jesus walked in, for it's his righteousness that has been given us. And not only just imputed to us, but imparted to us. So that we're not going about seeking our own righteousness, but we do have a righteousness, and it's a tangible righteousness as well. A righteousness that we work out into our character, in our conduct, not in order to gain acceptance with God, but to celebrate in our obedience, our acceptance with God in His Son. Well, we'll close there. In the next episode, we'll take a closer look at authority. We'll take a closer look at the high priesthood of Christ and how he fulfilled that at the cross and how he continues to fulfill that even today. Amen.